Numinous Podcast with Carmen Spaniola. Hi there, and welcome to the Numinous Podcast, where we have interesting conversations with everyday folks about the mystery of life. This podcast is a complement to the Numinous School, my online intuition development program. And it's produced with the support and encouragement of my patrons, listeners who enjoy the show and let me know with a financial high five. If you'd like to become a patron of the show, I'll let you know how at the end of the episode. Today I'm talking with John Reed, who's an astronomy interpreter at the H.R. McMillan Space Center. I connected with John over the phone. He was at home in Vancouver, B.C. So, John, why are you interested in space? My first experience with space was um, my parents had a power boat when we were younger, and we used to go up and down the Georgia Strait, Desolation Sound and all that. And uh, I think I was in grade two, and we um, we uh, anchored by an island, went to the island, and then we looked at uh, Jupiter through a little telescope that my dad had. And, yeah, it was just beautiful because out there you don't get the light pollution. You get, like, pristine dark skies. And Jupiter's one of those very immediately rewarding objects if you're new to astronomy because you're going to see the big disk. You're going to see the moons no matter what the size of your telescope. So, um, and that's my first memory of astronomy, but it carried on through then um, – in grade three, astronomy is in the curriculum in grade three and still is for people in BC. And um, the uh, it was in when I was doing grade three, it was the first part of the curriculum, and I was so excited about the astronomy we were learning. Uh, the the teacher had to study to keep up with me, and um, just uh, yeah, did everything for it. And then we changed topics, and then. For the rest of the year, I went dead quiet and didn't say anything. And the teacher uh, called my parents and and was wondering if there was problems at home or, or what's going on with John. But it was just that I was so into astronomy, and I've carried that interest since then. And there's reasons for that. It's just, first of all, um, astronomy is very, very visual. So um, unlike a lot of sciences, um, you can just, go out there with a blanket on the mountaintop, lay back and look at the night sky, uh, watch meteor shower, just gaze at the Milky Way, or or uh, or if you have a telescope or even binoculars, you can see these stunning objects, nebulas, clusters, double stars, galaxies, planets, this goes on and on. And uh, that's what's so rewarding is seeing visually these beautiful distant objects and uh, and the amount of them you can see, depending on what your telescope is. And then the added part is, if you start looking at the universe, you start thinking about it. And there's so much to think about with astronomy. Um, who we are, where we came from, um, life elsewhere out there, dark matter, a lot of mysteries. And uh, it's just one of those types of like, I'm both a librarian and astronomy educator, but... If I'm ever traveling and I say, people say, you know, what do you do? I'll say a librarian and amateur astronomer. Immediately people, oh, astronomy, you know, <laughs> uh, what what happened with that, uh, 
you know, what happened with this? Or did you see that big shooting star the other night? Or have you ever seen the Aurora? Something always comes up. And it's one of those topics that really does intrigue a lot of people. And I I can definitely see why. So I never, that's one of those like, of course, moments like I, I've never thought of astronomy as as being hyper visual, but of course it is. Of course it is. And and that's really interesting to just to pull that out as one of the, the simple pleasures of that particular kind of science is how visual it is. Now, I can you painted the picture here of being in the dark night sky, you know, looking being on the mountaintop, you're on your blanket, you're staring up at the sky. And I'd love for you to explain to me and to the listeners, give us the uh, explanation of the Fermi paradox. Because I, I saw this on the internet and it, it kind of was another one of those things that just blew my mind and I, I, I yeah, kind of, it warped no my brain a little bit. So please explain what that yeah. is. And, and, you know, feel free to cut in whenever you want because this is very, you know, there's there's so many ways to look at this. Um, basically what the Fermi paradox is, is... Um, if there's first uh, to explain it, you have to consider the size sizes that we're dealing with here. We're on one planet, the Earth, that's part of eight planets that go around the sun. The sun is one star out of 400 billion in our own Milky Way galaxy. That's just one galaxy. And there are 100 billion galaxies that we know of, all with between 100, bill, or 100 million to a trillion stars. That means more stars and grains of sand on the planet Earth. So so basically, now we know with the technology that we've developed that a lot of these stars have planets as well. And we're only detecting the planets nearby us, and it's very hard to detect Earth-sized planets. But with the current estimates of satellites that have been up there like Kepler, there is probably... um, uh, there's probably one billion Earths, that have planets that are inhabitable zone around the sun that can support liquid water and possibly even life, similar size to Earth. There's probably about one billion of them in our own galaxy. Um, and there would be uh, a lot more than that, obviously, within the universe. And, um, and within those 100 billion, um, it's estimated that... If we take a conservative estimate, 1% of those would develop life, um, and then another 1% of that 1% develops intelligent life, there would still be 100,000 advanced civilizations in our own galaxy. (laughs) Okay, um, so again, (laughs) this makes me crazy. So what the heck? Like, where are they? Yeah, so that's the big Fermi character. If the numbers are there, if the stats are there to support that, okay, yeah, there's got to be all this life out there. And I didn't add as well, we're only assuming Earth-like conditions for all that life. Life out there could see by radio wave, drink methane, uh, breathe carbon dioxide. It could be totally different, too. Mm-hmm. So anyway, but um, yeah, so where are they all is the big question. If, if scientists say that there's got to be that much life out there, and uh, that is a good question. So there's different explanations. There's one that were, were very rare. There's something called the Great Filter. The Great Filter? Um, yeah, the Great Filter. So when astronomers are trying to explain the Fermi paradox, 
if we're if if we are rare, if we take that as one of the possibilities, then then we have to think about why. And the gray filter is those moments in human history that everything, just like a one in a billion chance, a lot of freak incidents have to happen altogether for life to continue past that great filter stage. Mm. And uh, one of those stages would be just the fact that life developed itself right at the beginning. So mm. um, there's a number of those stages that have happened, uh, catastrophes or some say a great filter stage right now is where we're at mm. uh, with our technology, how fast it's changing so quickly and how far we can continue from there. So there's the one possibility that we're very rare. There's another possibility that we're the first. And uh, this is one I kind of lean to a bit, well, although I really believe that there is a lot of life out there. Uh, whether or not they have advanced at this point, I don't know, because the universe is still quite young. So in the early universe, there was a lot of... Uh, 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 gamma ray bursts, a lot of collisions that would have prevented the, the evolution of any life forms. So um, maybe we're at a point that a lot of other life is at and just haven't found them, and they haven't found us. And um, um, yeah, and also there's the possibility that this is an intriguing one, but that maybe when life gets to the point that we are now, maybe you just can't go further. Um, so I'll use a different word than the article I just read used, but that basically we're screwed. <laughs> so, so, yeah, so maybe um, there's so many ways to look at people spiritually, emotionally, um, intellectually, and uh is there a limit to what you can achieve in all those areas or where you can get to? Mm-hmm. Technologically, it looks like we, we have no limits because, you know, um, as you and I know, we were using Walkmans and answering machines and no internet when we were growing up. And then, like, that's only 20 years ago. 20 years from now, it's probably going to be crazier still. And if you consider that there's some civilizations out there that might be might be have, have been around for three billion more years than we have. Who knows? Okay, but so maybe, but you bring up yeah. the idea though that maybe we just can't go any further. So maybe maybe it's not that we're the first, but maybe it's just that others have destroyed themselves because yeah, as, and, like just like we're doing, <laughs> really. Yeah, but. and that's that's that might be that might be what stops civilizations destroying themselves. Another thing would be that they are destroyed themselves by cataclysmic events in the universe. Mm. We saw what happened to the dinosaurs with the asteroid, right. stuff like that. Uh, gamma ray explosions, um, uh, supernova explosions, asteroid collisions. These right. could all just end life itself. But the, the one I find intriguing is, is like, yeah, just, just, intellectually how smart can we get and if we are getting smarter are we also getting spiritually and emotionally smarter and in what ways do all these things advance civilization and so it's who knows i mean uh who knows how further we can get if we're falling behind in one area or not and if it's possible to keep going the question is like can, can humans have humans controlled evolution at this point and can we 
are we going to evolve stupider or brighter or <laughs> right. more self-aware? Exactly. <laughs> right. Maybe the internet is the great filter that keeps us just stupid yeah. enough <laughs> to yeah. survive a little longer. But so the paradox, though, is that the chances are really good that there's life out there, so much so that what are the chances that it hasn't contacted us yet? Like that, that's the weird paradox of it is like chances are extremely high that there's intelligent life, so much so that it's almost like inconceivable that we haven't encountered it yet. Yeah, totally. And we have the uh, search for extraterrestrial intelligence um, with the radio array in the States. I've been looking for radio signals or any type of uh, different signals that they can find coming to us from space over the last several decades. And we're certainly signing out those signals from Earth. Why aren't we getting any in return? So, this is yeah. insane. Okay, so now we have noticed something, and this is, again, thank you, Internet, for <laughs> giving me some awareness of what's going on in the cosmos, but we have noticed something happening on Ceres. Now, is okay, Ceres is one of the moons of Saturn or Jupiter? No, Ceres is actually a dwarf planet, which oh. is in the asteroid belt. Oh, okay, uh, okay. So, yeah, between Mars and Jupiter, there's, like, Millions of little rocks, um, and Ceres just happens to be the biggest of them, um, and uh, big enough that it got dwarf planet status along with Pluto and several others. Okay, so um, now what's happening with Ceres right now with these crazy lights? Yeah, yeah. So the Dawn mission um, is uh, was a mission designed to orbit two objects in the asteroid belt, Vesta and Ceres, and it's already done Vesta, and it's now on the way to Ceres a few, a few months ago, it began to detect these very bright, shiny marks in a very large crater on Ceres. And this is unlike anything we've seen elsewhere in the solar system. And uh, Dawn's getting closer all the time, and we still don't really know what it is. There, It could be um, reflection from ice. Ice is certainly bright. Um, and uh, it could be that, or it could be salt patches, they say, that could do that. Um, but basically, astronomers don't know, but what we do know is the, the Dawn mission is getting closer all the time, and on June 28th, it will be uh, uh, several thousand times, uh, several thousand kilometers closer than it is now, and maybe we'll get better answers and measurements, but... Uh, uh, your guess is as good as mine at this point on that one. <laughs> okay, so could it also be, I mean, maybe it's too big, I don't know the scale of things, but could it also be just like a bunch of like space debris looking like tinfoil, like it's just falling? Because what happens to all the space garbage? Like could it could it have just gotten into the asteroid belt and it's gotten all caught up on Ceres and it's actually like another satellite is just being reflected? Back? No, this um, well we well there's there's two two definitions of space debris either they're natural like uh, meteoroids uh, which are basically just small rocks and dust floating around our solar system. There's a lot of that we see it every night as shooting stars when they enter our atmosphere. Mm-hmm. And then there's um, artificial uh, space debris, which is leftovers from uh, basically uh, missions that we sent up there, satellites, uh, uh, descent stages of rockets and all that stuff. So anything, any man-made mission that is not functional anymore that might be in pieces or might not be. So 
basically human waste that we've left up there is uh, uh, space free. And none of that, all of that stuff orbits around the Earth. So none of it would have carried as far as the asteroid belt. I see. Uh, um, so that's, it's probably unlikely. Um, yeah. So... What happens with all the space debris? So this is what makes me, like, this breaks my heart about humanity is that we have garbage orbiting yeah. our planet. And what, yeah, like, what's yeah. supposed to happen with all that? Do scientists just kind of say, well, it's okay if, you know, 0.1% of our atmosphere has garbage in it because the chances of it hurting anything are okay? Like, is this just <laughs> kind of like a mitigated risk that we're like all right with? Or is that, was this unintentional to have so much garbage up there? Yeah, well, it's, uh, well, the risks are really too, um, um, uh, satellites and, and especially manned missions we send up there. Mm. If you're talking, there's there's a lot uh, there's a lot of space debris and uh, over 500,000 pieces that are being tracked. 20,000 of those are the size of a softball. But even if you're talking about the size of a, like a paint fleck or something, that could do severe damage to puncture an astronaut uh, uniform. Mm. It could uh, puncture the International Space Station and depressurize it. Yeah. So the real concern is, yeah, it kind of sucks that we have garbage floating up there, but it also, it, the big concern for the scientists is that, that it could, uh, you know, put human lives, lives at risk up there. So part of your question was, um, what are we doing about it or what's going to happen to the space debris? Mm -hmm. And well, first of all, most of it over time is just going to, uh, the orbits of it, they, it orbits the Earth and most of it's just going to, the orbit will detect decay and fall into the earth um there's about there's one chunk of space debris that uh falls into our atmosphere every day for the last 50 years um and uh but uh there's still a lot of junk out there and there's more all the time and the big problem is is that the ones that could do damage are too small to track or find but they're big enough to do damage to astronauts and satellites up there. Hmm. So the resolutions are basically you can develop shields. If there's a risk of space debris hitting the ISS, the International Space Station, you can send the astronauts into the back capsule there, the Soyuz, where it's a lot more protected for emergencies. Hmm. Um, there's international guidelines in dealing with uh, space debris, what you're allowed to leave there and whatnot. Um, um, and there's avoidance maneuvers that you can do if the ground control knows you're about to hit one. So the strategies, but you can't just vacuum the whole stuff up. It's like, uh, it's, 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 it would be, the thing is, it's so expensive. What you have to do is you have to go to each piece of space debris, and there are 500,000 pieces of them that we know about. You have to fly up to it. You have to go to the same speed that it's traveling to, to, to capture it. Then you capture it, and then you want to relaunch it into our ocean. Well, there's just throwing the garbage somewhere else. but <laughs> and, uh, and so there's a lot of steps in considering how many pieces are up there and uh, how expensive it is to do that, but nobody's really gone on that. So who uh, – now I'm just thinking about, like, all of the um... – telecommunication satellites and things like that like who who decides who gets like if a corporation is like okay we want to you know launch this thing into space like who who who's in charge of space 
Like who gets to decide <laughs> who gets to throw something up there and what they're going to do with uh, their well, garbage? Uh, it's a mixture of private enterprise and, and public. I mean, most space missions uh, through history have been uh, uh, government through NASA or European Space Agency where they've uh, they've got government funding to send uh, a mission to another planet or the moon. Uh, but recently, we're seeing a lot of development of uh, private astronomy where uh, NASA doesn't get the funding it needs. So a lot of uh, private um, companies are getting together to launch something. And they, they have the entire right to do that. As, uh, as long as it's safe, there, there is guidelines that they have to follow to do that. But they're allowed to fund themselves and uh, send their own uh, uh, vehicles up there. So. Wow, and this that's is terrifying to me. <laughs> this is terrifying <laughs> to me. Wow, okay. So what do you think? personally, about colonizing other planets? Uh, well, first of all, I think we're a long way away from that. Um, you know, um, what the, the nearest star to us is four light years. Light year is 12 trillion kilometers of light travel in a year. We're, we, we, it's even questionable to me that we should even be sending men to Mars at this stage. I just don't think we're ready. Um, so for me, that's a long way away, but the most obvious place to colonize in the near future would be the moon. I, I do think it's kind of sad because the moon's been such a pristine object throughout history in, uh, in our skies. And, uh, um, yeah, but I, I expect it's going to happen because it's the nearest object to us. Um, so the colonized planets, I, you know, who knows what will happen, like uh, thousands or even millions of years down the road. Maybe a few Einsteins will come along to figure out the travel speed of light. Maybe we'll find, we know other Earths exist out there. Maybe we'll be able to colonize them. Um, hmm. But uh, anybody going there is, is just speculating at this point. But Mars and the Moon are real possibilities. And Mars, they have that uh, one-way mission proposal, um, sending astronauts there to that will never come back and uh, live there and uh, begin colonizing it and uh, and uh, and see if there's uh, the history of liquid water and life and all that. Not a mission I would want to go on, but yeah. <laughs> so, how? But like when you when you remember that little boy looking up at the night sky and you like tune into your heart and how excited you were and how lit up you were and, and, and what that activated in you. And you think about being made up of the same stuff as stars. I think it's Carl Sagan who, yeah. you know, says that it's just Carl like, that's, Sagan, that's so magical. Stuff, yeah. yeah, it's so magical. And so on a spiritual level, how, what's your relationship like with that, with the cosmos? Like, do you think about yourself as a spiritual being? Do you think about what's going to happen after you oh, die? Yeah. yeah, absolutely. For me, for me, um, astronomy is a very, very emotional and spiritual experience. I mean, um, yeah, I remember uh, I did this little course about astronomy in uh, 97. I got to talk to the teacher afterwards and I asked him a similar question. He says, Every time it's the emotion of the event for me, whether it's like seeing a blazing shooting star or the red aurora one night or that, those one of those real amateur astronomy gems or a telescope, that's what you remember. The um, 
just yeah and and, and just you, you really do connect with the universe in a way by seeing all of this um so as an example like I never want to have my telescope attached to a computer and then view the images on a computer. Looking at it yourself through the eyepiece with nothing in between, well, I guess the mirrors are down from the light, but it's just a very pure and very um, uh, exciting experience. And, and to think that we're all living in this world, we have our daily jobs, our daily problems, our daily relationships, but there is a whole universe out there that makes us makes us makes everything that we're doing seem um, seem not not significant. That's not the word I want to use, but just puts it into perspective that that wow, it's a beautiful universe. There's so much going on, so much we don't know about, so much we probably never will. I bet you there will always be mysteries to the universe that'll keep our minds going. Um, as uh, Richard Feynman once said, nature is smarter than man. Um, uh, it's always going to confuse us, and I really believe that. And and uh, that's part of the real beauty of it. I mean, it's something above us, something uh, that we can't uh, wrap our fingers around, and uh, that's that's what's so beautiful about it. And not only that, just I'm an amateur astronomer, and just seeing just seeing like Hercules cluster or Albireo or, or the ring nebula through a telescope. It's just beautiful. So I think that the, all those experiences together really make astronomy um, fascinating to uh, what seems to me a lot of people. And, and it's, it is certainly very spiritual. And, and, and then you could get into a lot of, you could get into a lot of spiritual questions if you're wondering about, you know, the history of the where the Big Bang came from, or you know, do other planets out there have their own gods or whatever? But uh, and that's fun to chat about. But uh, there is just a feeling when you look at astronomy and uh, and think about it that is the most important. So that's very cool. Okay, so the last question on the Numinous podcast comes from the Proust questionnaire, and the question is, John, what do you consider perfect happiness? What do I consider perfect happiness? Yeah. Um, I think imperfection. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, yeah, I there there there's always ups and downs and uh, life, and we all have our faults. I, I I think it's a mistake to look for perfect happiness. Happiness is found in those nooks and crannies and those moments that uh, you gain a little bit of self-awareness, a bit about understanding about yourself and other people. And, uh, and it wouldn't be good to look for perfect happiness. Like, Oh, that's my destination to be perfectly happy. But there's, it's the whole process of a life as a journey. I'm sure there'll be many ups and downs to come in the next, uh, 40 years. So, um, yeah. So I, I don't, I, I do believe in happiness. I feel tremendous amounts of joy now and then, but I think to get there is just involving yourself in your passions, um, getting to know yourself, surrounding yourself with great people. Um, family relationships are very important and, uh, and taking care of your health and, um, and all those things. So, nice. yeah. 
Well, I've been totally charmed by your passion for the stars, John, and I totally can't wait until it's nighttime and I can go out and we'll take our telescope out. Thank you so much for sharing that with us today. Yeah, you're very welcome, darling. So, hey, if you ever find yourself getting stressed about the minutia of daily life, if you ever start to find yourself getting caught up in the thick of thin things, I would like you to recall what John said. At any moment now, there could be a gamma ray explosion or an asteroid hitting us. Basically, all kinds of crazy stuff could happen that just wipes out all life on Earth. So let's just enjoy ourselves and be present with each other, shall we? (laughs) I really enjoyed having the uh, big, thick questions discussed with John on the show today. So I really want to thank him for taking the time to be with us. And I'd also like to thank all the listeners in Ireland. You are my Anamkara, the friends of my soul, as they say in your mother tongue. So I really appreciate that you are uh, here with us. It feels very special to me. I I send you much love from this side of the pond. (laughs) For all of today's show notes, go to my website, carmenspaniola.com, C-A-R-M-E-N-S-P-A-G-N-O-L-A, and just click the link for the podcast. At carmenspaniola.com, you'll also find information about becoming a patron. So when you look at the show notes, you'll see a little button for becoming a patron. If you like the show, you can let me know with as little as a dollar an episode. And finally, to ensure you never miss an episode, sign up to receive notifications at the bottom of my site. Until next time, take care. <laughs>